Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills, Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. Glad to be with you again this hot summer day. Um, interesting topic today, uh, very much one in keeping with the season we're in. It was 50 years ago this very summer, in the summer of 1972, that a massive deployment of U.S. naval and air elements was unleashed on North Vietnam, rolling back the enemy's Easter offensive and paving the way for the Paris Peace Accords. Operation Linebacker um, took the fight to North Vietnam like it hadn't been before and really came loaded for bear. And by the end of 1972, North Vietnam was ready to talk peace. And here to talk with us today about the crucial role of sea power in helping bring about the end of the Vietnam conflict is our favorite renowned Vietnam historian, Edward J. Marauda, joining us again on the podcast uh, to discuss his cover story and the current issue of Naval History Magazine, Operation Linebacker, The Sea Power Factor. Ed, welcome back. It's great to see you again. How have you been? Oh, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to uh, speaking to your distinguished audience. Yes. Well, they are distinguished, and they might not know that, but you're all distinguished, <laughs> folks, and uh, we're glad to have you here. And we'd like to hear from you. We're live. We can converse in real time. You got a question? We'll uh, take it on and uh, we'll um, answer it for you, hopefully, while you're watching the show. Well, Ed, why don't you set the table for us here? This is a um, compelling um, naval story of the Vietnam War, the culmination of it, the climactic campaign of it. And it starts with a rollback of their um, big Easter offensive, but it goes beyond that to where we go big offense. And um, I love the way your story starts with the final naval battle of the Vietnam War and then builds the whole rest of it from there. But why don't you set the table for us by talking about what was going on that spring, the North Vietnamese advance and uh, their Easter offensive and how we- well, a, little, a little background, a little background to the, uh, the Easter offensive or the Win Way offensive, the North Vietnamese referred to it. And you go back to 1968 where Lyndon Johnson said, uh, I'm out of the race. We will start talking with Hanoi to bring this to a conclusion. And uh, ending the bombing in North Vietnam. Uh, from that point on, uh, the U.S. Navy and the other U.S. Armed Forces and the South Vietnamese Armed Forces were involved in dealing with uh, enemy actions in Cambodia and Laos and, and elsewhere. And uh, in 19. 70, from that point on, we were training in 1969, 1970, training the South Vietnamese military uh, to take over the war, the Vietnamization program, um, looking to U.S. withdrawal from uh, Vietnam and from the war, ultimately. And um, we were, the North Vietnamese were building up their forces in North Vietnam, in Laos, and in Cambodia, uh, expecting another offensive. To, uh, to wrap the whole thing up. Uh, Ho Chi Minh, of course, died in 1969, in September 1969. His successor, Lei Zhuan, uh, very avid about completing the entire uh, war on their behalf. And uh, so you had a buildup of forces uh, throughout the region. Uh, preliminary to that, in fact, one of the first major tests of the Vietnamization program that was pushed by President Richard M. Nixon and his Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, uh, prepared the Vietnamese to fight the war. Well, they did relatively well in uh, the Cambodian incursions of 19, uh, 1970, not so well in 1971. 
in Operation Lamson 719 when uh, Arvin Army of Vietnam forces, the elite of the Arvin military, uh, went into Laos to cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, they cut it very briefly, uh, but then the North Vietnamese uh, reaction was much too hard for the South Vietnamese to handle. And because uh, U.S. forces had been prevented from going into, La into Laos with the South Vietnamese army, now we had air support, but no ground uh, forces and no advisors, U.S. advisors were allowed in Laos. So uh, the Vietnamese, uh, they fought hard. They had some very hard fought battles. The Vietnamese Marine Corps, the Airborne Division, and the, the Arvin First Division all had elements in Laos. But ultimately, they had to leave, and their casualties were fairly stiff. And it did not do them well. Their morale suffered uh, a, a loss from uh, being involved in the Laos operation. Uh, it also, on the other side, emboldened the North Vietnamese that they could handle the South Vietnamese military. Uh, the one thing that the South Vietnamese had, and uh, we had promised them, President Nixon had promised them, that with the withdrawal of U.S. forces on the ground, if the enemy ever attacked, made a major invasion into South Vietnam, uh, they could count on U.S. air and naval support, which turns out to be uh, very crucial to the outcome of the Easter Offensive. Uh, during the period 1971, early 1972, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General uh, Admiral Moore, uh, had actually said, we need to go into North Vietnam and take out some of these forces that are preparing to invade South Vietnam. Let's do it before it happens, uh, preempt the enemy. Uh, President Nixon said, no, we're not going to do that because we would lose the support of the American people. Uh, the enemy has to make the first, the first strike. And he said, once that happens, it's akin to, well, I don't, it's exaggeration, but uh, something on the order of Pearl Harbor. If the enemy attacks us, we'll be really up in arms. The American people will support our reaction to that. So he really denied, as did Secretary of Defense uh, Melvin Laird, denied uh, Thomas H. Moore, uh, the authority to go ahead and take out sites in North Vietnam prior to the launch of the enemy's Easter offensive. Well, that happened on the 30th of March, 1972. And you had, now these were not uh, black pajama clad, conical hat uh, enemy troops like the Viet Cong in the Mekong Delta. These were hardened, battle ready, hard, you know, well-trained North Vietnamese regular forces with T-54 tanks, main battle tanks, uh, SA-7 surface-to-air uh, missiles, a long-range 130-millimeter artillery, and various other the, the accoutrements of modern combat. Uh, these were combat divisions. Uh, they came pouring across the demilitarized zone at the 17th parallel and uh, very soon handled the 3rd Arvin Division, which was the newest division in the Armed Forces of South Vietnam. Uh, they were badly handled, and they, they got drubbed and eventually had to pull back. Well, Mick Nixon came through with his promise about supporting uh, our South Vietnamese allies with air and naval support. Uh, that, that was critical. Now, an important thing to remember here 
is that not only were we helping our allies and we had pledged that we would support them in this, but Nixon had larger fish to fry on the diplomatic front. Um, he and Henry Kissinger had gone to uh, Beijing in February of 1972, and we were making nice with the People's Republic of China. We wanted that to work. The Chinese wanted that to work. At the same time, we had negotiations going with the Soviets in for a May meeting in Moscow to talk about strategic arms limitation. And, and the Soviets wanted that badly. So in essence, North Vietnam had lost some of its diplomatic support that they had had throughout the war up to that point. And Nixon, with the response to the Easter offensive, uh, one of his main points is we want to show the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China that the United States will be a power to be reckoned with, even after our withdrawal from Vietnam. We're still a global presence and a strong military presence that uh, they need to, to reckon with. So that, that, um, that figured into some of the operational and tactical decisions uh, General Creighton Abrams, who was commander of U.S. forces in uh, military assistance command in Vietnam, MACV. And at various times, he wanted B-52 bombers to concentrate their work in South Vietnam against the enemy there. And Nixon and, of course, uh, Admiral Moore, being his primary military advisor, uh, said, no, we have to parcel out some of the bombing for South Vietnam, but we also need to uh, use them, the B-52s, against targets in Cambodia and in North Vietnam to impress uh, the communist side that we mean business. So this caused some heartburn with uh, General Abrams and, and some others, but that was the direction from the White House. So the 30th of March, the North Vietnamese invasion uh, took place, and troops came across the DMZ, the 17th parallel. That was one strike. Then to the far south, north of Saigon, uh, another North Vietnamese offensive thrust uh, occurred, uh, pushing toward the capital of South Vietnam. This was a very serious threat and uh, not very far between the Cambodian border and, and the capital of Saigon. And then a few weeks later, in the central highlands of Vietnam came the third major offensive thrust of uh, linebacker, uh, not linebacker, of the Easter Offensive. Now, even though Navy carrier aircraft were involved in the operations north of Saigon and in the central highlands with uh, strikes and air support, uh, the Navy's input impact was really the greatest in military region one. That is the region uh, formerly known as I-Corps, but you know, later military region one, uh, just south of the DMZ. And in the first weeks of the offensive, the weather was terrible which aided the enemy side. So it limited what our air support could do. Well, into the breach came the U.S. 7th Fleet. We had as many as 20 destroyers and cruisers offshore during this period, uh, just deluging the enemy formations with fire. Uh, if you liken it to the, the recent situation in Ukraine, where the, uh, the Russian forces came from Belarus toward Kyiv, hoping to seize the capital in a coup de main, if you will. Uh, but they, they were stuck to the roads. The tanks were on the roads. They didn't really know where they were going. And they, they were dependent on fuel for these tanks and armored vehicles. And the, the Ukrainians, of course, chopped them up and ultimately forced them back into Belarus. Uh, 
Well, the same thing happened to the, the North Vietnamese forces coming down the main route between North and South Vietnam, which was QL1. And so these were basically road-bound troops with a lot of armored vehicles, all kinds of vehicles, which the uh, naval gunfire ships offshore uh, just pummeled, uh, really added to their, to their toll. At the same time, we had uh, advisors that were still in Vietnam. Our combat troops had left, but advisors were still in country, including U.S. Marine advisors with the various urban uh, divisions. Well, in that area was a, who became famous. I, I met him later on. He was head of Marine Corps history just across the way from the Naval Historical Center, uh, John Ripley. John Ripley, at various times, uh, and he, by the way, he went on to earn the Navy Cross for his exploits in taking down a major bridge over the Quaviet River. This is the main watercourse just south of the DMZ, which is very critical to either cross over or hold. Uh, so anyway, he helped destroy the bridge at Quaviet, for which he was awarded the Navy Cross. But he also remarked that during this period, what really saved the bacon of he and his fellow advisors and the surviving South Vietnamese troops who were falling back from the enemy assault, uh, naval gunfire support was really uh, vital to their survival. Well, after two or three weeks, the, the weather got better, even though the uh, citadel at Quang Tri, Quang Tri City, fell to the enemy the uh, 1st of May. But um, the enemy was definitely slow. There are many battle pauses, if you will, just as the Russians are doing now in the, the Donbass. Uh, they can only do so much. Their troops get exhausted. They run out of ammunition, whatnot. Same thing was happening to the North Vietnamese. And then air power came into its own. And during this early period, uh, Navy tactical air from the carriers offshore in the Gulf of Tonkin and Air Force air tactical air, um, both of them were, were launching like 2,000 strikes apiece during this period and uh, having a major impact along with the gunfire support, which continued. Well, at this point, uh, with the loss of Quang Tri City, President Nixon decided you know, we have to consider other options here. The enemy has given us the opening. They have they have invaded, and we can rally the American people behind our effort, which which what panned out. Uh, so he initially op authorized uh, bombing operations up to the, the 19th parallel, Operation Freedom Train, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, and Arvin, or not Arvin, but Vietnam Air Force took part in these operations up to the 19th parallel. And uh, in the middle of April, Admiral Moore went to the president and said, uh, we need to do more. We have ships that can range the coast of North Vietnam and bring fire upon all their military facilities up to and including Haiphong, the major port of North Vietnam. Now, this was something <clears throat> that was uh, different than what had happened during Rolling Thunder, the period before 1968. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson, especially and especially Secretary of Defense uh, Robert McNamara, had really restricted what Navy surface ships could do in North Vietnam. 
and not until 1967, this is fairly, you know, two years after the major war began, where the fleet was authorized to go up to, only up to the 20th parallel with bombardment. The Navy argued, well, why can't we do more here? We can, in bad weather where the airplanes can't operate, we can, the ships can operate. We can take out not only the, uh, the logistic traffic he he heading south on QL1 towards South Vietnam, but also those boats, the sampans, the junks, and the other uh, watercraft that come down the coast delivering supplies. We can take them out as well. And um, Johnson and McNamara restricted the authority to do that to the point where they said you can sink these these vessels when they're in the water, but if they beach on the, on the shore, you can't go after them. Uh, just ludicrous uh, restrictions here. Well, that was off. In the 14th of April in 1972, Admiral Moore unleashed the, the Navy, if you will, to strike above the 20th parallel, all up to and including all the military facilities around Haiphong. Uh, cruisers and destroyers were just uh, tearing up the North Vietnamese coastal areas with their fire. Uh, did the enemy fight back? Absolutely. They hit ships, they killed sailors, uh, but we never, throughout the entire Vietnam War, lost a naval warship to enemy fire. Um, so their bombardment was telling. The enemy, uh, they, they had coastal guns, but most of their coastal guns were field artillery pieces, army, army guns, if you will, uh, not really uh, prepared or uh, designed to take out ships. And um, so they fired back, and every so often they, they'd hit a ship. But our maneuvering vessels and our ability to, to get out of harm's way, if they had to, very quickly, uh, really limited the enemy's impact here. So at this point, now that we're, we've got the go-ahead to go north of the 20th parallel, finally, uh, we're now into Operation Linebacker. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, th this brings up an interesting uh, now. The Navy, as early as 1967, wanted to take the fight to them north of the 20th parallel, but they were um, kneecapped on doing that. You have to wonder, because once linebacker unleashes hell on them north of the 20th parallel, you know, that, that sets the wheels in motion to get this thing wrapped up. What if they had the go-ahead to do that in 1967? Could we have precipitated the end of this conflict <laughs> considerably sooner? <clears throat> well, that's an often asked question. What if we did in 1967 or 1965, what we did in 1972, could we have won the war? Uh, my answer to that is no. There were a number of factors. 1972 was entirely different from the earlier years in that um, there was a very real fear that China would intervene with a ground army. And I, I firmly believe that was the case. The, the Chinese had made numerous pledges to uh, Ho Chi Minh and company in Hanoi that if the Americans either launched a ground invasion or took, took any really harsh steps to overturn the government, say, or bombarded uh, Hanoi and Haiphong into oblivion, the, the Chinese would have come in. And Johnson and Nixon, they were kept, you know, criticized for that, but they, they took that threat very seriously. And so it really limited what we could do. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the lack of diplomatic support from the People's Republic and from the Soviet Union in 1972 differed considerably from what had happened before. 
Now, why is that? Now, does that have to do with the death of Ho Chi Minh in 69? Did that lead to the erosion of the support, or is that just a... No, it's just that uh, to the Soviets and even the Chinese, um, Vietnam, the Vietnam War was only a secondary consideration, especially the Soviets. They were worried about things in Europe and around the globe. Uh, they did want to have um, nuclear arms limitations with the United States and uh, the period of detente that Nixon and Kissinger were pushing and the Soviets were into that. So that was their number one priority. <clears throat> the Vietnam War was not their number one. Same thing with the Chinese. I mean, this was revolutionary when Nixon and Kissinger opened the, the United States, if you will, or the world to the People's Republic, to communist China. Uh, these were big doings. And Mao realized he needed, Mao was afraid ironically, at that point, of attack by the Soviet Union against China. So he was looking to get American support. So, and that was the, another thing was that it was clear to everyone on all sides that we were not intent on winning the war at this point. Our objective was to allow our allies, the South Vietnamese, to continue the fight to preserve their independence, the independence of the Republic of Vietnam, and, and as long as we got our prisoners back, and that was a huge item with Admiral Moore in particular, um, then we were prepared to, we wanted to negotiate to get out of there. Uh, so that was it. We were not, we we're not in it to, to win the war at this point. Everyone knew that, including the, the North Vietnamese. So it was a different factor at that point. Yeah. Um what Nixon did in 72, go, op opening the West to China with that um, profound visit, that, that, that was kind of, I don't know if it was as crafty as it turned out to be, but it was really that actually was a genius thing because then that got the Soviets saying, well, we want to talk to these guys too. We don't want to get like frosted out talking to the U.S. now that China's talking to them. They felt like the, so he really kind of set the ball rolling and, and a lot of this kind of defrosting of the Cold War. This is all happening in 72 at the same time as uh, – we're trying to get this thing to the finish line. Um, nonetheless, once we did go uh, above the parallel, uh, that leads to uh, the uh, decimation of Haiphong Harbor at last. And maybe you can tell us about that. That is technically the last uh, naval battle of the Vietnam War. All right. Well, I want to make the point that um, the U.S. Navy, the Seventh Fleet in particular, have been involved in fighting since, in a big way since 1965. All the way through 1968, the end of uh, combat operations into North Vietnam. So when the fleet came back into the fray in 1972, you had a veteran force. You know, many of the officers and sailors had been on multiple tours, the carriers, multiple tours in uh, Southeast Asia during this period. Uh, so we had a really battle-trained, battle-hardened force ready to go to war. Uh, on the, the morale side, people were ready to do it. Now, President Nixon, in contrast to Lyndon Johnson, allowed much more latitude with regard to rules of engagement and the operational approaches. Now, not, he didn't totally take his gloves off or his hands off. He still interfered when he thought too many North Vietnamese civilians would be killed in various operations. But he gave the military much greater latitude to do what they knew would be the most effective use of their forces. So, and morale-wise, oh, another example, um, the ratio of 
wins to losses in the air, air-to-air -air combat uh, during Rolling Thunder was two to one, not a good, not a good ratio. Uh, and we created, as most people know, <laughs> having just seen the movie, sequel to Top Gun, um, the Top Gun school turned out really crackerjack uh, aviators uh, and turned that ratio around to 13 to 1 during uh, the 1972 period. So that had a major impact. Another aspect was the advent of precision-guided munitions. Now, we had what the walleye uh, glide bomb earlier uh, in the war, but very small numbers, and they were still perfecting the technology. By 1972, uh, the walleye was a very effective weapon. Uh, the Air Force had uh, electromagnetic glide bombs and various other uh, ordnance that did much the same thing. And uh, as I pointed out in the article, Admiral, later Admiral Snuffy Smith, commander of our forces in, in the Balkans uh, in a later period, uh, at this point was an aviator, A-7 aviator, and he and his wingman went in and put two walleye glide bombs into the Tanwa Bridge, uh, better known as the Dragon's Jaw Bridge, which had really been, that stood impervious to Air Force and Navy bombing throughout Rolling Thunder. Well, uh, Snuffy Smith and his, his wingman and two other A-7s were dropping conventional ordnance. Uh, they, they took out the bridge. Now, the North Vietnamese got very adept at repairing bridges, uh, so they started repairing the Tanwa Bridge after this strike. But the damage was so great, and the continuous bombing of the area really cut that bridge for good until the end of the war. The... Uh, the situation with Haiphong, another example, during Rolling Thunder, everyone and his uncle in the military had pressed Lyndon Johnson to mine the harbors, mine the coast of North Vietnam. Uh, this seems to be an obvious approach. It's a weapon that you put in there and the enemy has to react to it. Um, finally, President Nixon told Admiral Moore, he said, look, I'm taking the gloves off here. We're not going to be nice guys anymore. I'm giving you authority to do the mining, make it work. And if you don't, you're in trouble, basically. Um, so Admiral Moore, uh, now this is a, an interesting story, which I bring out in the article, that um, <clears throat> Admiral Moore, from that point on, of course, we know that the mining operation was a success, uh, took sole credit for that mining operation. That was a, a think tank study done after the war, and Admiral Zumwalt, who was uh, chief of naval operations at that point, is not even mentioned in this study. Uh, so, And in Admiral Moore's U.S. Naval Institute oral history, uh, really says he was the guy who did it. Uh, Admiral Zumwalt, the chief of naval operations, also made a pitch that, hey, wait a minute, we had the, the plans for the mining on the shelf in OPNAV, Navy operations, uh, from earlier times. We had multiple plans to do the mining, which was never carried out. And um, Bobby, Lieutenant Commander Roberta Hazard, who goes on to become a Rear Admiral at one point, she was uh, Zumwalt's aide in 1972. And she said she remembers vividly Admiral Zumwalt and Admiral Moore, both of them on their hands and knees on the floor of their office in the Pentagon, uh, pouring over maps of Haiphong Harbor. So um, 
Admiral Zuma was just as much involved as was Admiral Moore in the mining of Haiphong. Now, here was an operation that took place on the 9th of, uh, 9th of May, 1972, preliminary to the start of, of linebacker. And you had three Marine Corps A-6 aircraft and, and six Navy A-7s. That's all. They had 36 mines, Mark 52 mines between them. And in three minutes, or a very short time, a few minutes, uh, they went into the approaches to Haiphong Harbor, unseen by the, or un, untarried with by the enemy, uh, dropped their mines and got out of town. No casualties. We lost no planes, no pilots. And here was Haiphong now closed, basically, uh, to the import and export uh, business. You know, we, they were, the mines were timed, and we told those in, in the harbor, there was, uh, Soviet ships in there, British, you know, all kinds of ships in there. We said, you've got a certain number of hours to get out of town, out of Dodge. Um, a few did, but most just stayed there, and they were there for the rest of the war. Uh, we shut down the port of Haiphong, through which passed, had passed 85% of North Vietnam's imports. Uh, it was its major port, no question about it. Uh, subsequent to the 9 May mining, we then uh, mined the river approaches, the harbor mouths, the coastal areas all along the coast of North Vietnam, some 11,700 mines, Mark 52s, Mark 36 destructors, and others. Uh, so it was a major, major function of Seven Fleet Power to, to do the mining operation. Again, cost us no one, no aircraft. It was done. The enemy had to respond, and they really had no response to it. Let me cut in there, and I would, I would um, direct readers to uh, refer to page 17 of your article um, for a map that shows the extent of the um, mining operations by the 7th Fleet in 1972. It is extremely extensive. Um, well, that gives you a little hint of it, but yeah, you, it's just phenomenal how many uh, mines were laid there. And this is uh, all prelude to actually the attack on Haiphong Harbor, correct? First, they shut it down. Then they um, attack it in linebacker. Um, we, oh, before I go on, we have a question. Um, let's see if we can get it on the screen. Oh, here you are. Robert Elliott, you mentioned Wiblix, the waterborne, subi, suborn, waterborne supply ships heading south. Was the fight against them more like counter-narcotics, <laughs> visit board search and seizure, or World War II? Just sink them. Uh, it's more like World War II. Just sink them. <laughs> Yes, the, uh, we had no intention of boarding the vessels. Of course, you would have been under shell fire from the shore. And uh, there were just too many boats. I mean, too many boats trying to head south. And uh, we, we took huge numbers of these boats out once the, the rains were off. Um, and uh, they, they eventually would, they tried to run into the harbors and we'd go after them there. Of course, the mines complicated their, their activities. So no, it was not uh, stopping, searching, and seizure. It was sink them, and we sank a lot of them. So that added to their woes. I mean, we had gunfire hitting the roads heading south. Uh, aviators, you know, aviation assets were hitting the same targets. So all the Seven Fleet weapons were, were going against the logistic flow south, which was a big part of the mission. Uh, we wanted to help starve the 
North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces in South Vietnam, <clears throat> starved them of supplies, ammunition, fuel, uh, food, and all the wherewithal of, of combat. Uh, that was part of it. We also wanted to really degrade the uh, military systems of North Vietnam, take out their, their fuel farms. There weren't many big fuel farms left anymore, but wherever we could find uh, their fuel storage, um, their anti-aircraft sites, their missile sites, surface-to-air missile sites, um, and that, those were big targets. Uh, to another aspect that um, I had mentioned that we never lost a warship throughout the war, well, not with the enemy not wanting to do that. In fact, uh, if you look at, there are a number of documents that have been published, articles and various other pieces uh, by those folks, historians and veterans and others in North or in Vietnam, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam now, uh, where they talk about how they wanted to sink an aircraft carrier, which would have been real plus, uh, comparable maybe to taking out the, the Moskva in the, the Black Sea recently by the Ukrainians. Um, and they, at one point, set up a facility in Tanwa province to use surface-to-air missiles, the SA-2 guidelines surface-to-air missiles, which took down some of our planes, to actually be used as a surface-to-surface -surface missile. Well, our codebreakers picked up on this activity at the base. We went in there with aviation and just took it out. So that ended that, that effort. According to... Um, Captain Ivanovich, a Soviet advisor who worked with the Vietnamese at this point, uh, they had another scheme in mind, the North Vietnamese did, to use skip bombing. That is a plane heading for a ship, a carrier, and dropping a bomb, which then skips over the water into the hull of, of the ship. Well, the North Vietnamese, I mean, the Soviets at one point thought, well, this is ludicrous. Are they just joking with us? No, the North Vietnamese were serious. And when the Soviets didn't really take any action on that regard, uh, they asked the Cubans to help them, and the Cubans couldn't help much either. So that, that died, but they had the thought that they could take out ships. On one occasion, in April of 1972, uh, two MiGs, two North Vietnamese MiGs, did come out and attack destroyer Higby. Well, they dropped a bomb in the fantail. They took out a, a turret, which was unoccupied at the time, wounded four sailors, but for that, uh, they had one of those make shot down by a surface-to-air missile, a, a Talos, I believe Talos missile, fired by uh, one of our, our ships there for that purpose. Um, so they, they paid a heavy price to drop that one bomb and take out a turret, uh, and that was basically it. Um, as uh, Eric mentioned, the, uh, the naval actions of the war, now you we all know about the Tonkin Gulf incident of August of 1964, where three P-4, Soviet-made P-4 uh, motor torpedo boats came out against Maddox, traded fire with Maddox. Uh, they got shot up by Admiral Stockdale and others who came with their aircraft overhead. Did not sink any of the three, uh, but they were all battered. Uh, and shortly afterward, on the, um, the 6th of August, we launched Operation Pierce Arrow in retaliation for the uh, 2 August attack on our fleet and the suspected and later proven not to have happened attack on the 4th of August, uh, we launched this retaliatory strike. And during that time, we took out a number of uh, 
uh, P4s and Swatow gunboats and some other naval vessels. The numbers are hard to pin down uh, in the ports and just offshore of, of North Vietnam. In July of 1966, another attempt, three from the same, in fact, <laughs> the same three boats from that uh, PT squadron came out toward the fleet, were picked up by Navy Air, and we sank all three. And definitely, no question about it, they were, they were sunk, and we captured 19 North Vietnamese sailors who were later uh, returned to North Vietnam in exchange for our prisoners. And uh, in that instant, and then, as I mentioned at the outset of the article, the 27th of August, that same squadron, they don't give up. Uh, they sent, these are now Soviet-made P-6 motor torpedo boats. Again, they're torpedo boats. So you've got to get fairly close to uh, your enemy to launch torpedoes. They came out, we picked them up. It was in Operation Lion's Den, um, which has been written about and, and talked about. Admiral Holloway, who later Chief of Naval Operations, but at that point, Commander 7th Fleet, was on board Heavy um, Cruiser Newport News at the time, not commanding the operation, but there to observe. And uh, he was able to call in air support from uh, later Admiral Pickavance and later Admiral Money, Moneybacker. Uh, and they sank uh, two of the, the numbers again are a little bit iffy here. There may have been three or four boats in the area, but I think it's pretty much three, and two of those were sunk. Uh, we, I refer to this as the last naval battle of the Vietnam War, which I think is appropriate. So we had, at one time or another, really neutralized the North Vietnamese naval threat. One other thing, along with the, uh, the Soviets not wanting to really give the North Vietnamese the wherewithal to sink our ships, they never gave them the stick surface-to-surface -surface missile uh, during the war, which had taken out, remember the uh, Israeli destroyer Ilat was sunk by the Egyptians with a Styx missile. They never gave the Styx missile to the North Vietnamese until the very end of the war. Uh, some five Komar, a surface to surface uh, boats with Styx missiles, uh, were finally given. Well, the war is almost over, and we sank one of them in any case by air. So that threat never materialized. They never dropped mines in our vicinity. That might have been a troublemaker. Uh, the Soviets kept a tight leash on the North Vietnamese. Huh. I love your quote of President Nixon to Admiral Moore, his chief military advisor. This is your chance to use military power effectively to win this war. And if you don't, I'll consider you responsible. No pressure there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, he didn't have to worry because uh, Thomas Hinton Moore was a very strong, very loyal supporter to President Nixon. Um, he was really Nixon's only military advisor. Uh, you had the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff on which sat Admiral Zumwalt, and you had earlier General Westmoreland, com commander of MACV in Vietnam, followed by Creighton Abrams and Air Force and Marine officers. Well, the, the Joint Chiefs really did not have a strong impact on the direction of the Vietnam War. They were sidelined, both by Lyndon Johnson and by, by Richard Nixon. And it didn't, hurt, it didn't help that uh, some of the folks on the Joint Chiefs uh, were anathema to President Nixon. Uh, Elmo Zumo in particular, he saw him as a radical social uh, 
a reformer. And uh, well, Nixon like, saw Zumwalt as that. You mean correct? I'm sorry. Nixon saw Zumwalt as the radical reformer, correct? Absolutely, yes. Well, was, and Zumwalt had no regard for the president either. He saw him as a uh, tyrant. So there was no love lost. And after uh, their terms in Vietnam, both uh, Westmoreland and Abrams were in disfavor at the White House. So he wasn't going to rely on the Joint Chiefs to, uh, to do his bidding. And not only that, there was another complicating factor. Uh, also in the doghouse with Nixon and Henry Kissinger, the National Security Advisor, was the Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird. Um, there were a number of instances where they finally wrote him out of things and tried to keep him cut out you know, out of the loop whenever they were planning any kind of operation. Only at the last minute would they inform the Secretary of Defense what was going to happen. And instead, Nixon and Kissinger worked almost directly with Admiral Moore. Uh, the Cambodian bombing of 1969, the so-called secret bombing, the incursion in May of 1970, uh, Lamson 719. Uh, Moore was very definitely involved. As I relate in a little plug here, my book uh, published uh, last year by Texas Tech Press, uh, Admirals Under Fire, the U.S. Navy, and the Vietnam War. Uh, I go into this issue much more, with much more depth. And also, Nixon was not entirely pleased with uh, Melvin Laird's unwillingness to really take harsh action against the North Vietnamese, and and Laird believing that Vietnamization would just create a South Vietnamese military that would carry on with no help. Well, as was shown in linebacker, air support was absolutely vital. Not only Navy air support, but Air Force air support, Marine Corps, and Army air support was critical to the survival of the armed forces of South Vietnam. They fought hard and they fought well in many cases, but without air support, it would have been toast. Uh, so back to a little side point here, if I may interject, because um, it speaks to the sort of cultural moment, uh, that sequel to Top Gun that has just made $8 zillion since its release. Everybody and their brother has seen it five times. And this really, it, it's an interesting um, historical backdrop to that when you look back here and how that's kind of like their coming out party. Um, Top Gun School, I mean, you talked about the, the ratio goes from three to one to 13 to one in the air. And uh, it was sort of their baptism under fire. And also it showed, man, there this is what we needed. We needed a Top Gun School. And mm -hmm. it was a pretty auspicious debut. And that was right here, folks, uh, 50 years ago this summer in Operation Linebacker, um, sort of the roots of Top Gun's glory. Uh, anyway, back to where we were. Um, uh, linebacker segues into linebacker two by the end of the year. Um, but all of this is taking its toll uh, on um, North Vietnam's desire to have continuance of this. Um, how, so it sounds to me like this idea really did work. Uh, they wanted to bring this thing to a close and there you go. By the end of the year, they're getting that result. Um, I, I should add. If we can just like. No, I, I just said, add. We've talked about the mining and the gunfire support by the surface ships, and um, I, oh, I want to bring in the amphibious aspect too. The 
in uh, after the initial invasion, March 30th, and the fall of Guangxi City, uh, the South Vietnamese Armed Forces, with U.S. air and naval support, were able to hold the line just south of Guangxi City and launch a counterattack during the remainder of the summer and into the fall. Uh, and the end result was they recaptured Guangxi City uh, just before the end of the war. Now, what made this, what helped facilitate success in this operation was an aspect of the war that really hadn't done very well earlier on, amphibious operations. We had, we launched some 71 amphibious raids and various other uh, operations uh, during the early part of the war. Well, here in 72, the uh, 7th Fleet's Amphibious Force, Task Force 76, came in and with South Vietnamese Marines, uh, we heli-lifted, Marine helicopters uh, lifted South Vietnamese Marines uh, to, on the, the uh, left flank of the uh, North Vietnamese forces trying to defend Quang Tri City. And through July, there were some five separate amphibious either feints or actual uh, heliborne landings uh, to the behind enemy lines and even troops coming across the beach. We landed troops on the beach. So an amphibious operation really had a major impact on the South Vietnamese Armed Forces recapturing Quang Tri City uh, and getting almost up to the Quaviet River, not totally, but uh, so, so a successful operation that we, we helped them engineer. Getting back to the earlier point, having talked about uh, the mining and gunfire support and taking out the North Vietnamese Navy, linebacker really kicked off on the 10th of May, 1972. This was the major operation. At that, <clears throat> that point, uh, we had like 100 vessels of the United States Navy, the 7th Fleet, in the Gulf of Tonkin or thereabouts, uh, including unprecedented number of six aircraft carriers under the control of Commander 7th Fleet, Admiral Holloway. And um, that first day of linebacker, the 10th of May, uh, was a massive operation by three carriers against targets in Haiphong, uh, Haidung, which is between Haiphong and Hanoi, and Kampha, up on the, the border with China, the port of Kampha and Hongai. Um, major operations that bombed these places pretty heavily. Well, this is the heartland of North Vietnam. And so Lei Zuan and company uh, couldn't have that happen. They had to use their MiG force, which had they'd used on occasion during the war, but really husbanded their strength in this regard. But this time, uh, they sent them up to go against the uh, the aviators coming in from the carriers. In six minutes during this day, we shot down, Navy F-4 Phantoms shot down six enemy MiGs. And during the day, Navy and Air Force uh, claimed 11 MiGs shot down. So they paid a heavy price for their, their reaction here. Uh, I also should point out something that had really blossomed and developed technologically and uh, in operation, operational, the operational sense, was the uh, PIRAS ships. Positive Identification Radar Advisory Zone. PIRAS was the name given to it. It's easier to remember their call sign, which was Red Crown. Everyone in the fleet knew what Red Crown was. These were ships that had very advanced radars, communications gear, and highly trained sailors. 
operating the systems. Um, Larry Knoll is one who has got a distinguished flying cross for his exploits, his assistance to Navy and Air Force uh, fighters in shooting down enemy MiGs. The Pyrrhus ships were right there to monitor the skies over North Vietnam and over the Gulf, uh, to vector our friendly planes toward the enemy planes. We knew where they were taking off, where they were going. Uh, just a phenomenal technological capability that really, really helped us. So the uh, all these all this activity. There was a brief pause in October of 1972 where we thought we had peace. Henry Kissinger said, "Peace is at hand," or "It's, it's very close." Uh, it was not to be. Uh, President Nixon was getting a little leery that some of the things he had agreed to, he was kind of backtracking. The uh, North Vietnamese were backtracking somewhat as well. They weren't quite happy. And the president of South Vietnam, the Republic of Vietnam, Nguyen Van Thieu, was especially displeased at what he thought the North Vietnamese and the Americans had agreed to and he wasn't privy to. So he he put up a stink. The, the uh, supposed peace fell apart. Well, at this point, Nixon said, all right, I'm tired of this stuff. We're going we're gonna to end this thing right now. We're going to use B-52s all the tactical aircraft that we can muster, and we're going to go after the enemy in downtown Hanoi, downtown Haiphong, and we're going to drop bombs and let the people of these cities and elsewhere know no one is, is free from, from our attack. Uh, and so that happened. Now, the B-52 strikes, uh, we lost aircraft. In fact, we lost uh, a startling number fairly on in the operation. But the Air Force figured out a way to vary their tactics, their equipment, and how they went about doing it, uh, and the losses dropped. And by the 18th of, or by the end of December, um, the North Vietnamese realized, okay, we're not, we're running out of, of missiles for one, surface-to-air missiles, uh, both the blockade and, and the harder, it was harder to get stuff in from China over land. And they said, you know, we've got most of what we want. We just want to get the Americans out of here, and we'll take care of things later. And part of the agreement that was eventual agreement was that the North Vietnamese were not told they had to get their troops out of the areas they held in South Vietnam. That was a Trojan horse, as it turned out. But anyway, the North Vietnamese said, we got enough. We're ready to end this. And um, that was just enough to put the whole thing over the top. 27th of January, 1973, the uh, Paris Agreement ends our participation in the war at that point. It's fascinating this is all happening um, as a backdrop to uh, Nixon's re-election campaign in that same fall of 72, in which mm -hmm. he went in a historic landslide. So he had to be feeling pretty good about things by late 1972, early 1973. He'd won a re-election in a landslide. He brought the North Vietnamese to the Paris peace talks. Uh, of course, the next two years, the wheels will fall off for him, but that's mm -hmm. another story for another day. Right. Uh, it's a pretty amazing um, thing to think about, isn't it? That in the end, it just took a total grinding full court press to not so much win, as you say, which wasn't even the goal at this point, but just to end it. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I know I sort of hit, hit it, hinted at it earlier, but it just begs the question, what if, and then I, uh, if they'd done this earlier, and Rolling Thunder was an attempt at that, but it was kind of a constricted attempt in terms of, mm -hmm. for all its 
Sturm und Drang, it was a little bit restricted. Uh, there's a lesson, a larger lesson there maybe that's like go hard or go home and do it. Right <laughs> go. I'm not sure what it is, but it's something. It's interesting food for historical thought. Um, do you have any parting thoughts, Ed? I, I would um, add, uh, yes, Ed's book, um, Admirals Under Fire, we reviewed it in the magazine. It's a great book. It's the history of the Navy and the Vietnam War, and it's really great inside stuff. Uh, we gave it a great review, I might add. So I would highly recommend that to anybody. Um, amphibious ops in the Vietnam War sounds like an article in itself. So that's something for us to think about down the road. Ed, well, uh, if you you're interested in that, in uh, the book that Tom Cutler and I are doing for the Naval Institute. Yeah, let's uh, hear about this. Retrospective on the Vietnam War. Uh, we have essays that talk about amphibious operations, uh, the mobile riverine force, the Na Army Navy mobile riverine force in, in the Mekong Delta, uh, the, the Vietnam Marine Corps and Vietnam Navy has got exclusive treatment by Jay Vaith. And, uh, and we do go into the amphibious operations, most of which uh, were a lot more resources devoted to them than we got back for the, for the effort. But, um, well, one in, one in particular, the first one, Operation Starlight in uh, the fall of 1965, uh, Navy amphibious forces along with ground forces, Marine and, and Army and others, uh, surrounded the first Viet Cong regiment in the northern part of South Vietnam and destroyed that regiment, at least temporarily. Um, but the enemy learned from that experience. They never, after that, really stood and fought the amphibious landings. They just go into the jungle. So we uh, took a lot of casualties from mines and booby traps and the rest, and it was finally decided by late 67, we don't need to do more of these. We'll just concentrate the amphibious forces off I-Corps to help the Marines ashore. Anyhow. But what's the name of this book going to be? Just to give the uh, audience a. I don't know that we've settled on a final title, but it's a retrospective on the U.S. U.S. Oh no, a retrospective on the naval war in Vietnam, because it's not just the riverboats and the mobile riverine force, but it's also Marine Corps operations, uh, the, two, the helicopter squadron HAL three, the Sea Wolves, uh, so air support. Um, and we, we try to treat the Vietnamese armed forces fairly, that their Navy and their Marine Corps figure prominently in the work, but also our own. Can't wait to see this, and I'm sure uh, others share my view. It's got essays from several um, authorities on all the different aspects of the Naval War. It's uh, going to be a barn burner, and we're looking forward to that one. Uh, stay tuned next year, folks, for more on that. Ed, it's a pleasure to have you back on here. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's always very enlightening. And I thank you for joining us today for a great edition of the podcast. Uh, I guess that's it for us today, folks. Um, this was a good one. Um, if you enjoy being part of the conversation, uh, we invite you to always be a part of the, the Naval Conversation. If you're not a member of the Institute, this is where the conversations go on, the debates. Uh, and it's been this way for almost 150 years now, folks. So you can be part of that larger thing down through the ages by joining up. There's the... Uh, prompt right there. Um, be part of it, and we'll be glad to have you in the fold. Uh, I'm Eric Mills, and that's it for this edition of the Naval History Podcast of the Proceedings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>